0: Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do,
1: remember your health. Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do. Hello and welcome to this podcast of the American Journal of Public Health for the month of September 2018. I use the September podcast as an opportunity to review episodes from podcasts recorded over the last 12 months that were particularly timely with respect to hot issues in American public health. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor in chief of AJPH, and we are August 6, 2018. Let's start with the hurricanes. You recall we had the terrible hurricane season and the devastating effects of Harvey, Irma and Maria. The January 2018 podcast revealed both sides of the tragedy, the destruction and the reconstruction. I interviewed Reed Toxin, managing director of Toxin Health Connection, about solutions and ways that natural disasters can in fact promote community resiliency and positive changes in terms of public health and sustainability. And so in 2005, so, so uh, there was uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and it was a major disaster. Two thousand deaths, etc. And I think it's it's a case in point of your theory. Can can you explain what happened after Katrina, which is positive in your view?
2: Yeah, it was One of the things that I thought was extremely uh, encouraging by the response of so many people to Katrina was that they used it as an opportunity to really rebuild uh, their infrastructure for service delivery and for prevention. Let me give you an example. Um, yeah. the, after the hurricane, they had an 80% reduction um, in their hospital capacity and a 75% of their safety net uh, clinics closed. What they did was to create something called the Louisiana, Healthcare Redesign Collaborative, which was focused on rebuilding primary care and prevention, quality of care using IT resources intelligently and broader insurance uh, coverage. As a result of their activity, they really created a sustainable infrastructure. But what also I think I learned and was excited the most about was their community prevention activities. They revitalized flooded areas as family parks and meeting centers. They engineered berms to serve as walking trails. They created something called the Crescent Park Trail, a safe place for walking and biking that featured a pedestrian bridge to give access to shared green spaces previously isolated by the railroad tracks. And then finally, what also encouraged me was there addressing food insecurity by a very enterprising person who took empty lots and created community orchards that have been sustained by uh, philanthropy. So the point of it all is I think what Katrina teaches us is that we can absolutely think about rebuilding in a disaster in ways that create the opportunities for a healthier community even healthier than prior to the disaster and that's extremely important that, that's that's
1: absolutely fascinating but my question to you is are these communities in uh, New Orleans thinking that they are now healthier and more socially vibrant than they were before the disaster do we know that? <laughs>
2: We do know that, we do know that, but what we also know, and this is one of the critical factors, is that from the experts that I have consulted, there is a much higher level of community resilience. The resilience as organized communities and resilience as individual members of communities. And this resilience factor is key, not only to rebuilding, key not only to creating health, but also key in preparing to sustain The next crisis that occurs, because we know that the more resilient individuals and communities are, the more engaged that community infrastructures are uh, across different stakeholders, the better able they will have, uh, be able to sustain uh, themselves and respond to the inevitable disasters that visit all communities eventually.
1: In the podcast of April 2018, that was the month of National Public Health Week, we decided to explore how much direct dialogue could exist between Democrats and Republicans on public health policies related to racism, single-payer health plan, the Environmental Protection Agency, and public health advocacy. Georges Benjamin, executive director of the American Public Health Association, explained his strategy to keep the national dialogue on public health alive when the political scene becomes extraordinarily polarized. Georges, I think many people in public health have the same reason as you to feel angry. But something happened in the last few weeks. I mean, were there specific events or that
0: triggered this feeling in you, which is unusual? Well, you know, obviously, we, we just in this last week we had the we had the shootings in Florida, um, which is you know one of a trio of of of, of big shootings that we've had recently, um, and part of a series of, of really violent gun deaths that we've had. Um, we've had uh, attacks on our environmental um, programs um, and things that are addressing the health of the public. You know, the environment used to be a bipartisan uh, activity to protect our health, and now it's become a very partisan, controversial era when it was, you know, it's always been, had some controversy, but not like it is today. Um, the underpinnings of, of many of our reproductive rights um which undermine, fundamentally undermine the health of women. Things around um cutting, I mean just dramatic cuts in the programs for health, with no real rhyme or reason under the guise of reform. Uh, You know, when you when you when you look at it, you have to say, what's going on? Um, The rationale for many of these things make no sense whatsoever. Uh, in a in a a system in which you really the goal of course is to improve our health improve our health our well being so you know we 're all finding ourselves in a, an area in which we have to um debate uh, and it sets us up for this this feeling about this whole idea of um do you just settle you know how you know how do you, how do you work with people who you vigorously disagree with Uh, And it's bringing that, I think, to light more and more each and every day. Um, And I have um, a a rule of thumb that one of my mentors taught me. And it is, you know, when when things are are, are tough and you have difficulty making a decision, particularly, you know, as a health professional, um, I always do what's important for the patient. You know, this is putting my clinical hat on. As a public health practitioner, it was real clear to me. One morning I woke up and said, you know, I need to stay focused on the health of the public. And if I do that, you know, everything else will will fall away. Um, It's going to be a battle, but it always has been. Um, So I would think I would think about the way I am now is fiercely determined with a goal of doing whatever I think is right, no matter who I upset.
1: Let's next turn to the July podcast, which focused on gun violence after the Florida rampage on February 14, 2018. In this podcast, I spoke to Colleen Barry, a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, about whether it was conceivable that gun owners and non-gun owners might see eye-to-eye on gun violence prevention policies, Colleen. Um, so this podcast is about gun violence prevention, and uh, and you have this uh, survey, you know, which results you published in uh, the July issue of the journal um, about the support uh, that Americans give to a specific policies. So how much support exists? among Americans for specific gun violence policies?
3: Well, our results suggest quite a bit. Uh, over the last five years, our research team at Johns Hopkins has been looking closely at this question, and we've repeatedly surveyed representative samples of the U.S. public and have consistently found high levels of support for regulatory policies aimed at reducing gun violence. In this study, which we conducted in 2017, we looked at 24 different policies and found majority support for 23 of the 24.
1: So uh, why are people so emotional about gun violence prevention when they agree on so many policies?
3: So I think um, part of the issue is that the levels of agreement across uh, the American public aren't well understood. Um, The uh, media and public discourse over guns uh, is very uh, divisive right now in our country. And indeed, there are some real differences in the way people think about guns. But when it comes to gun policy uh, and specific strategies for trying to reduce Gun violence. Uh, there is actually quite a bit of agreement. I think more agreement than is generally understood.
1: So, give me an example of a popular policy which would, uh, you know, meet the uh, the agreement of gun owners and non-gun owners.
3: So one policy would require a person who can legally carry a concealed gun to pass a test demonstrating safe and lawful use. Support for this policy ranges from about 83% to 87% among gun owners, non-gun owners, Republicans, and Democrats. Um, Importantly, support was basically the same among respondents living in states with minimal to no restrictions on concealed gun carrying by civilian so-called right-to-carry states and among respondents in states that have more restrictive concealed carry laws. So this signals gun safety is an important area where both gun owners and non-gun owners can come together. Um, many gun owners in the U.S. are very aware of and knowledgeable about gun safety and supportive of policies like this one to encourage the safe handling of guns Uh, to the extent that we dwell so much on the deep divide over guns in public discourse, uh, I think it sometimes obscures the fact that there are policies like this Um, and there are many other examples where gun owners and non-gun owners agree.
1: The last podcast I will review here is the one dedicated to institutional racism. It has had more than a thousand listeners and is still attracting attention. Lisa Paoleg, a professor at the George Washington University, described the structures that support and propel institutional racism and the need for researchers to be aware of them. Lisa, you're a psychologist. How can mm-hmm. an institution have a psychological trait because racism is a psychological trait no
4: well, yeah, but institutions are composed of humans or or if you really want to bring agency into it, humans create institutions I mean institutions aren't in and of themselves living and breathing organisms they they create humans create institutions and in terms in turn the laws and policies and practices and norms that sustain them but if we step back we see a much larger historical system that undergirds how people come to think about difference on the basis of race and how they act in the first place so, for example, if we look into institutions, and in many, I'd say most, in the U.S., the people at the top, the people in power making the decisions, are white people. And undergirding a lot of that is this sort of collective belief that that's the way it's supposed to be, because you know, and you can go down the list: white people are smarter, or whatever. The but that's not that's not grounded in fact. Um, there are laws and systems and policies and practices. That help explain why that's the case. So, so the institutional racism
1: is not only uh, in the policy, but it's in the process of, of building institutions too,
4: mm-hmm. and and sustaining them. Sure,
1: sure. I next ask Lisa if well-intentioned efforts that ignore the role of these supra-individual structures could not only fail to improve public health but even make things worse
4: yeah i mean i think it, it makes things worse when researchers fail to acknowledge the role of structure and intent and then instead individualize or rely on stereotypes so i'm thinking about most of my research is in the, is hiv prevention and it's hiv prevention with black men and you can see that if you ask the question, well, God, why are black people so risky? Why why is HIV so high in this population? There's a way that you can e- immediately get into victim blaming and blaming the individuals and something is something about this group of people that is sort of intrinsically inferior or wrong, right? And versus if you ask, if researchers frame the questions in different ways. And so if you ask a question about well, what are the conditions or contexts that constrain the ability of black people or, you know, black men in the context of HIV to protect themselves from risk? And then you look at the research and the research shows, you know, many studies show that black men are no more likely um, to have lots of sex partners compared to black, to white men. They use condoms at high rates. Um, we've also seen this in research, done, national studies done with heterosexual um um, adults right so black black heterosexual young adults no more risky no more risky than you than white people um, but what happens is because HIV is so densely concentrated in black communities particularly low-income low-income communities for a variety of reasons it means that the the person like the young girl who's having sex for the first time with her only partner if her only partner a black man who's located in one of these communities her risks are much higher but white people by comparison hiv is not densely concentrated in, in white communities and so white people have to do really really risky stuff in order to get HIV. And so again, the importance of context. And so I think things go really wrong when researchers are not attentive to the role of structure and history, because then you end up stigmatizing already groups that are already marginalized and oppressed.
1: In summary, fascinating messages emerge from this podcast dedicated to hurricanes, to the public health dialogue, to guns, and to racism. First, natural disasters provoke tremendous destruction, but they also prompt great community resiliency efforts and regrowth of communities, such as in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. Second, extraordinary political tension requires extraordinary determination from both liberal and conservative parties to combat policies and procedures that place public health at risk. Third, there is great alignment on gun violence prevention policies Among both gun owners and non owners. And finally, everyone in public health needs to be conscious of the process that generates narratives and policies that victimize minorities. Hopefully, you are now convinced that stimulating a dialogue, as we are trying to do in this podcast, can reveal unsuspected dimensions and even solutions to the problems discussed. This theme resonates throughout many of our other podcasts. I encourage you to listen to the prior episodes and please stay tuned to the ones that are forthcoming. That's it. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas and, as it is often the case in public health, for their passion for justice. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Each podcast has its own song, composed or commissioned by Francis Jacob, who also performs the guitar solos. The Twister song was composed and interpreted by Kofu the Wonderman, master drummer from Nigeria. Kofu also performs the reggae song Remember Your Health that opens and closes this podcast. And Jose Picchio Balumbrosio, an Afro Peruvian drummer. Backed by three Cuban musicians, performed Cuida tu Salud. All these pieces, except the twister, were recorded by these great musicians, specifically for AJPH. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe on the podcast app on your phone or tablet.